0: Which is International Home Care LLC versus the United States Department of Labor, case number 222628. For appellants, when you're ready, uh, how many minutes would you like
1: to reserve for a bottle? I'd like to reserve five minutes, Your Honor. All right, that will be granted. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Michael Buschbacher. I'm appearing on behalf of plaintiff appellants in this case. I'd like to reserve five minutes, as I mentioned before. This appeal is about whether plaintiff's claims for pre-enforcement review under the APA uh, are timely. And specifically, it's about when the clock starts. The government's position is a rather bold one. They take the view that agency regulations should be more difficult to challenge than federal statutes. There's no time limit for bringing a constitutional challenge to a federal statute. Um, but according to the government, uh, once six years have passed, the window for pre-enforcement review of agency regulations uh, ends. Now, there are situations where Congress has radically curtailed pre-enforcement review of agency action. Those are statutes of proposed. This court explained recently, statutes of proposed start upon the occurrence of a specific event and may expire before a plaintiff discovers he has been wronged or even before damages have been suffered at all. Statutes of limitations are very different. According to Black's Law Dictionary, for instance, statute of uh, limitations is a statute that establishes a time limit pursuing in a civil case based on the date when the claim accrued as when an injury occurred or was discovered. That's Your
2: claim accrued. Yeah, that, that's the question that
1: is the question, Your Honor. So for uh, plaintiff age well, the earliest it could have accrued is when it came into existence in 2016. And for the other two plaintiffs...
2: That's the earliest, but that wasn't my question. When did it accrue? I,
1: I, 2016 is timely, so we can say 2016 for age well, and that is sufficient. When
2: did it came into existence?
1: Well, that's the earliest. I don't, there, there's, so that's, that's one point, and if that's correct, then we, we went on that basis for plaintiff age well. For the, for the other two plaintiffs, uh, the key point is that when you have a new potential liability, and the threat of enforcement, this is what happened in the Hair case out of the Sixth Circuit, that itself creates a new uh, legal wrong under.
2: Let me be clear. New potential liability and threat of enforcement. Yes, Your Honor. That's, that's what triggers. That's when you're aggrieved. So yes. when you brought this complaint, what threat of enforcement was there?
1: There's a threat of enforcement arising from the investigations and the communications from the Department but of Labor. The investigation
2: plaintiffs. hadn't happened when you brought this complaint. Yeah, the
1: investigations had begun when we brought uh, the complaint. It, it was several months afterwards. So, uh, uh, Department of Labor. So the rule is promulgated 2013, takes effect 2015, and then in 2020, the Department of Labor comes to all three of the plaintiffs and says, "We're investigating you because we think that you're in violation." And shortly thereafter, we filed the pre-enforcement challenges, and then three months for AgeWell and about a year later for the other two uh, plaintiffs, the government brought its enforcement actions. That's the timeline.
3: Is there an enforcement action in the two entities that didn't exist at the time of the promulgation? There is an enforcement action against those two?
1: There is an enforcement action against all three plaintiffs, but it was not at the time that we filed suit. Well, so that's what, that
2: was my question. Was the enforcement action – or you say saying the investigation – That's correct. Right. The
1: investigation was open, but no enforcement action had yet been filed. Very similar to the situation in the hair case where, in that case, the Forest Service came to the plaintiffs and said, um, you can't use your boat. If you do, we'll throw you in jail. And then uh, they filed a pre-enforcement action in response to that. Very similar here. The government came – it sent- was
3: an, as applied, not a facial attack. What difference did should- –
1: so, so we're, we we're our, our situation is the same as Hare. Uh We have a challenge to, like, if you look at the complaint in Hare, it asks for re, the classic APA relief, setting aside um, the agency's action and vacating it. So the asking that the rule in that case... The rule action, though,
3: was because the force department had decided to enforce it against them, not that the regulation itself was invalid. The,
1: their allegations were that the regulation itself was invalid. The important distinction here, and I think there are three buckets to look at, one is final agency action, the second is uh, harm, and the third is relief. And I think there's a taxonomy of, fa- like, what facial and as applied can mean, and it means different things. We laid this out in our brief. I think there are three different kinds of meanings. One is who's on which side of the V. That's how Justice Kavanaugh uh, used it in his PDR concurrence. Another is the scope of relief. That's how it's usually used in the First Amendment context is this, a uh, statute that is only unconstitutional in a certain application or is it unconstitutional across the board? And then there's the situation where I think we're talking about uh, more here, where hair in this case are on the same page, where you've got some kind of new event that's happened that has brought to bear uh, the previous rule against uh, the plaintiff seeking pre there
2: it was, the letter saying, we are going to... Assess criminal penalties and a fine if you don't stop doing this. I mean, that, that is your ticket to get into court, is it not? We don't have anything like that here.
1: We well, have a, I mean, those very similar threats, I don't have a letter for you, but that's what was communicated to, uh, to my clients as the enforcement, uh, investigation. Is that in the record
2: that they received this, this warning and this threat?
1: That it was, it's in the record that it was clear that they were, uh, that the government thought that they were uh, not complying with, uh, the 2013 Department of Labor rule. Is
2: that enough? I mean, uh, that's not exactly what HAIR is. Uh,
1: the difference between a letter and a verbal communication of that, I think is, I don't think that's... But do
2: we, is it in the, is the nature of what was going on when this complaint was filed, is that in the record?
1: Yes. So in the record, and I don't Where have
2: specifically, it... specifically, if you could point
1: out... So in the complaint, um, point the court to, uh, sorry, I'm pull it up here. Um,
2: So,
1: uh, I didn't see would uh, a 28J letter. I'd, I'd be happy to put that in a 28J letter. I, there are there are about three or four paragraphs in here that do address that. I don't have the number for you off, off the top of my head. Um, uh, it's 77, uh, paragraph 77. Uh, DOL's targeting of plaintiffs and other third-party agencies uh, threatens to put them out of business and decimate uh, the entire industry of home care providers. And I think it's in this whole section, page 16 and 17 of the complaint, um, that, that gets at some of this uh, this point.
2: Um, but nothing against the plaintiff, just its general conduct. So um,
1: there is then later uh, specific communications that are referenced involving um, – uh, plaintiffs, And as the government has conceded, this was filed in response to the opening of the investigations.
2: Right, so you'd say there's enough con- conduct here to entitle you to bring an action.
1: Yes. And I also want to clarify that for plaintiff age well, all of this is academic because they came into existence in 2016. So regardless of how you slice it, the earliest they could have been aggrieved, is going to be when they came to existence. You can't be harmed before you it's,
0: exist. The, it's the other plaintiffs that that maybe you're struggling a bit more with because your theory is they could have sued beforehand, chose maybe. not yeah. to. Could, could, you know maybe they didn't have sufficient prompting. Maybe they would have failed on a pre-enforcement review because Abbott Labs wouldn't have said you don't meet the test for pre-enforcement review. It's not sufficiently imminent, or or pick pick your kind of legal standard of choice. Right. But right now what you seem to be saying is, you know, they can get in really any time based on their kind of last violation, if I understand it. It's almost like a continuing violation theory exception for them. They could have sued sooner. um, Maybe. Didn't. Now they can sue now based on the last violation.
1: So I, w- I would say it's not a continuing violation. It's the opposite. Like in Stone uh, versus Troy Construction, this court said that you get a new uh, cause of action against employer, the government, it accrues to the government or the employee on each payday when the paycheck goes out. And so that new liability, and I would say liability plus threat of enforcement, just the fact that someone could possibly bring a lawsuit against you probably isn't enough. But here we've got both. Uh, potential liabilities and clear communication from the government that you're under investigation because we're pretty sure something's up here. And I think that's been – the fact that that was what they were thinking oh. is borne out by the fact that so, they brought it. So,
0: so, so let me just tease this out as a hypothetical. If there was a company that was in existence in 2013, let's say they operated for 17 years, totally in violation of the rule, it's now 2030, um, they probably could have maybe done some challenge to the rule somehow beforehand – but they get their first enforcement letter or their first kind of questionable letter in 2030. Is it your position that, well, you know, we're ignoring the rule for 17 years, uh, but now we're still timely because we we didn't get our enforcement letter or our notice or or our oral communication or our email from the agency until 2030?
1: I think the key thing is the language of the statute, which is, when a claim accrues and so i think judge sutton's analysis is very incisive on this point point. one final agency action can have multiple injuries that occur over a range of time periods and so in your hypo yes if that's the if that's the time that you have a potential liability and threat of enforcement coming up that's a legal wrong and that's what abbott labs is about it's like when you get. Some real threat that they're gonna come after your business. but, But isn't
0: it kind of when you, isn't it when the agency action kind of first accrues, not when just whenever it accrues?
1: So accrues, something can't accrue in the abstract. When something accrues, it comes into existence as a right. A personal property right in the case of the ability to sue. It's an intangible property right. It's a chosen action as the, you know, common law idea there. That chosen action belongs to somebody. So speaking of something accruing when final agency action happens, that confuses, I think, the the distinction between what the injury is and what the final agency action is. Again, just can't accrue in the abstract. I I see my time to... I
2: I, assume it, it would be asking for an advisory opinion if it was anything other than potential liability with the threat of enforcement.
1: I think you'd have to analyze it. If it was
2: potential liability, and you're coming in, you're saying, you know, we're doing this, and we're just not sure. But can we please have a? Can we please have your opinion so we're not violating the law? I mean, that's basically an advisory opinion.
1: Yeah. So I think the standard for getting into court, right? This is a well-established process. You have to show that there's something sufficiently imminent before you can go to court, and this is standing doctrine to prevent advisory opinions. Right. So that's exactly. I think you're exactly on the right track with that.
3: Um, Why couldn't someone go into court under its 553, subsection E, and ask for the agency to repeal or amend its regulation? And that can happen whenever.
1: That's right. And if there's
3: a denial of that, you can take an appeal from that denial. That gets around the whole metaphysics of promulgation and whether or not somebody that doesn't exist, or has not yet suffered an injury, can sue after the six-year statute is run.
1: So, two points to that, Your Honor. One... That's always available, and it does not extinguish pre-enforcement review. It's not available. No, I'm sorry. It sorry. does not extinguish pre-enforcement review. So you can always go to an agency. You can do it the day they promulgate something and put it in the Federal Register. You can say, we think you should reconsider it. That doesn't mean that you, you can't get pre-enforcement review. So I'd say the same analysis always applies.
3: But isn't that a kind of pre-enforcement review?
1: Uh, it's, it's not, Your Honor. I think going to the agency and saying we need we, you should do something different that's not required. You should amend
3: your rule. You should rescind the rule.
1: Right. So that's uh, that's not pre-enforcement judicial review.
3: Not, no, crap, uh, not judicial review. It is yes. a kind of. No, so it is a type of review. you can get judicial review out of that process if you're you deny
1: you, you can. But it doesn't. It, my point is that the availability of this avenue, I'm, I'm not aware of any case that says the opposite, uh, the availability of that avenue means nothing for the availability of pre-enforcement review. And as a practical matter, Oftentimes, these processes, if you do make that kind of petition, it takes a very long time. The agency can always say, oh, we're still thinking about it. Um, so as a practical matter, you may be looking at years of delay before you even get something to appeal. That's, I think Judge Jones's dissent in uh, Dunn-McCampbell it addresses this point really really well, um, and I think that's the right way of looking at it.
2: But the, the real question is whether your complaint alleged a sufficient uh, threat of enforcement. <coughs>
1: against you i i'd say yes and i'd say the, the <laughs> opening of the investigation like at, at the pleading stage all inferences have to be drawn in our favor uh i think the way it's laid out if there's an investigation it, it is part of a larger campaign and, and we, this
2: this this, um, this mentioned the opening of investigation yes the
1: investigation me? is mentioned in the complaint Sorry. um and uh Sorry, this is one of those things that the other side agreed with uh in their briefing and so I don't have I don't have paragraph numbers sitting here off the
2: top of my head. I'll look at it. Don't worry.
1: Okay.
0: So I guess I guess one of my questions relates to the text of seven oh two. Seven oh two focuses heavily on um, aggrieved um, by agency action. Right? Yes. Now agency action is specifically defined. Uh, elsewhere in the APA to basically talk about things such as rules and things such as orders. And so I guess my question though comes down to what you're saying is, so, so I, I can see using that as a trigger as soon as you're aggrieved, right? But what you're saying is no, wait for some overture by the agency, a letter, a communication, something like that, that they might actually enforce on you. That might be necessary to meet Abbott Labs' imminence test, yes, that's but fine. the letter isn't itself agency action.
1: It's not final agency. It's action. not final agency. It is, action. It is agency
0: action. I, I don't know that it is. Is it a rule? No, it's not final. So, but, then, but but is it? But the definition of agency action talks about things like rules, orders, licenses, sanctions. Yes. Maybe leaving some failure to act might 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 be yeah. the last of those. Which one of those does it fall into? I don't have the definition of agency action in front of me. It's in 551 somewhere. But the question is, which – because if we're going to tether this to being aggrieved by agency action, it would seem that it would be tethered to when you come into the ambit of agency action. So what you're maybe telling me is it was always the rule – the, don't look at agency action for the letter, look at the letter is doing the work on aggrieved?
1: No, I don't think the letter is what's aggrieving you. It's the, the What's being challenged is the original rule. And what I'm saying is that just like in, in Hare where uh, Judge Sutton said that things changed in 2013, they changed because of the government's action. He doesn't get into, and I don't think this court needs to get into, what precisely a letter is in terms of APA attributability to the agency. I think the key point is that you have, as a practical matter, it's not on the agency action prong of of the APA. It's on the aggrieved or legal, um, we have a legal wrong. And that is, that's a practical thing. It's looking at your, and it's a super low bar, right? Uh, Generally speaking, all you need to do is show injury in fact, plus um, that you're arguably within the zone of interest of the statute. So
3: I asked about facial versus as applied Earlier, because it seems to me that when, if it's a facial attack, when the, um, regulation is promulgated, at that point, there's going to be clearly a final agency action, yeah. and assuming you exist, and I know we've got some problems here with that assumption, but at that point you are aggrieved, whether not or not that action is taken against you.
1: Not necessarily. That's all of the, all of the cases that go to statutory standing under the APA where someone gets kicked on a preliminary basis, and there are many of them. Each one of them involves a situation where final agency action happened and there wasn't a sufficient grievance to get you into court. That goes all the way back to, like, toilet goods cases from the from the 60s, and there's a long, unbroken line of cases. And the, the government, is, I find that position a little odd for them to make because they go into court all the time and say, there may be final agency action, but you can't bring this case. They, that's, a, that's a regular occurrence uh, when you're defending uh, federal government. So to, you know, to to what I think the, the key point there, again, is distinguishing the two prongs, separate requirements is what the Supreme Court called them in the, uh, the Lujan case, where you have final agency action and the legal wrong adversely affected or aggrieved within the meaning of the statute.
2: Would you repeat that? You said that very quickly.
1: Yeah, sorry. Um, there are two separate requirements that the Supreme Court noted in the Lujan case.
0: Lujan 1990.
1: Yes, the, right, there are two. Not the standing Luhan case, but right. the other one. And, uh, requirement one is final agency action. Requirement two is that you have suffered legal wrong or been adversely affected or aggrieved within the meaning of the relevant statute. And following the data processing case from the 70s, that's been interpreted really broadly. Um, uh, I see my, my time has expired, so thank you very much, and, uh, we'll hear from you on your phone.
4: For police. Uh, good afternoon, May it please the court David Peters and back the United States of America. I'd like to start just about what plaintiffs are claiming here. Their argument is that the rule, which was promulgated in 2013, was invalid from the moment it was issued. The argument was it was contrary to the FLSA and arbitrary and capricious. There are generally two,
3: sure. again. The argument
4: is that it was contrary to law and arbitrary and capricious. There are generally two ways that a party can bring an affirmative suit to challenge a rule. They can bring a suit once an agency has taken particular final agency action to apply the rule to them. Plaintiffs aren't doing that here. They are not challenging, uh, any final agency action other than the issuance of the rule itself, and they just made that clear. Their point is that the rule is invalid from the moment it was issued. In Abbott Labs, the court also recognized an ability to bring an affirmative suit to relieve aggrieved parties, sorry, to rel- relieve regulated parties of facing an untenable choice. Between incurring a violation to challenge the law or complying with a rule they think is valid. That also isn't what plaintiffs are doing here. They didn't, they aren't facing an untenable choice between whether they should comply or not. They've already made that decision. They have been out of compliance with the rule for years. They built their entire business on not paying. Does that
2: matter if they, let's say they they did that for two weeks uh, and then an enforcement action was brought and you'd say that because they've been doing it for, for two weeks, they no longer face—you know—they didn't face an untenable choice because they made the choice. It doesn't make any sense.
4: you Yeah, they could surely, de- surely question the validity, uh, question the validity of the rule. And the way they would do that is as a defense in the enforcement action.
2: Well, they don't have to do that. I mean, if I'm facing that choice, I'm going to want to find out whether I'm doing the right thing or not. I'm going to want to bring a, a complaint. Are you saying that this, this complaint doesn't have a sufficient uh, statement of? their untenable choice and, you know, the, the potential for liability with the threat of enforcement?
4: You a, a pre-enforcement challenge or this idea of a direct challenge to the rulemaking itself is meant, and this is the entire point of Abbott Labs, to relieve a regulated party of that untenable choice. They don't have to incur a violation to challenge the rule. The point here is they have – the plaintiffs have been violating this rule for years. So, they can't so, then come so, to court. So,
0: so I guess your point would say as soon as, uh, as, soon as an entity – uh, doesn't comply. Just one iota. They've lost the ability to bring a pre-enforcement challenge because they've already not complied. So you have to come with a completely pure and clean slate in order to bring a pre-enforcement
4: challenge is what I hear you saying. Are you saying something that broad? Your honor. To bring a pre-enforcement challenge, what's, what's been called a pre-enforcement challenge or called a facial challenge to the rulemaking itself, the point of the availability of an APA claim is to say you haven't, you don't know what to do yet. And you can come to court for that clarification. But once you've taken in the violation of the act, you can't come to court so, and say So 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 it sounds it sounds like that that, 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 that pure
0: slate hypothetical that I said you're agreeing with. It sounds like you said, unless you're completely pure, you can't bring a pre-enforcement challenge. If you, if, if you trespass the r- rule in any way, shape, or form, you've already made a choice. And by already making that choice, you've lost the ability somehow under Abbott Labs, which doesn't really say that, to bringing this case. You're,
4: what plaintiff are asking the court to do is to stop the department's uh, ongoing investigation and enforcement activities into their repeated violations of the rule. And then they're saying, we want the court to say, we've been doing this for years. We think... We've been, we know what the rule is. We have the benefit of the home care decision from the D.C. Circuit. We've ignored those obligations. And instead, we want this court to ratify what we've prior done and stop the department's ability to bring enforcement actions against us. What then, case
2: says they can't do that? What case says their previous noncompliance robs them of the ability? Um, I mean, I guess you're going to say a stopple or a waiver or lashes or whatever. But what case says that that's the be-all and the end-all?
4: You're, it, just to be clear, this is not to say that they can't get review of the rule. They can. The way they get the re- review no, of the not, rule, no,
2: they're saying, please stop doing this. You know, this is wrong, and you're going to apply it to us, and it shouldn't be. It's a fa- you say it's a facial challenge, but it really isn't. It's an applied challenge. Uh,
4: yeah, you're right. I don't. I don't think the terminology of like this, the, the as applied and the facial are particularly helpful here. I, mean, I think the as applied challenge as the court's uh, supplemental briefing order suggested in higher order, in Alabama, and the crew case, those are all challenges to the application of the rule to them. And in this case, there isn't any final agency action doing that. What they, what the department has done is said, we think that you violated the rule and that we're going to bring an enforcement action against you. And the proper form for the plaintiffs to say, we think that's wrong, is in the course of the enforcement proceeding. So,
3: but th- that's
0: only after six years have passed. If we were inside those six years, your position would be you could do a pre-enforcement challenge, right? Otherwise, it's not. we aren't really here about the statute of limitations. We're here about the scope of pre-enforcement challenges. So,
4: you know, there's two things. I think that there are, as we laid out in our brief, there are two independent reasons why these claims are defective. The, the, the first is what we've been discussing before, is that not, it's not the proper use of the APA to come into court and to challenge the department's ongoing and investigative enforcement actions. This court in Gentile made that clear. They said, when it's the case that you are coming to court for the, att- for the purpose of questioning the legal authority of the, uh, an agency to take enforcement action against you, that's not a proper APA suit. That's such a threshold defect with the plaintiff's claims. And so even if it was brought within six years on the history of uh, to stop the enforcement action, that would be an invalid use of the APA. But separate and apart from that, Your Honor, the claims are also
3: untimely.
4: I, I thought is, – is that the one I wrote? Because
0: I, it is, I thought that was based on committed to agency discretion by law is, is a little bit different from just saying we've now got the, the letter – the basis here would be that the rule's invalid, not we don't like the exercise of your prosecutorial discretion. So that was kind of a Heckler v. Cheney style, 701 sort of play, not necessarily a, um, you know, rules invalid sort of
4: play. But, Your Honor, it is true that that was the grounds of the court ruled in there was that it was a committed to discretion by law. Um, and the court cited Adapt and Heckler and Cheney in a number of cases where the court has. In Lujan, on
0: 1990. Uh,
4: yeah, any number of cases, Your yeah. Honor. I, but the it, it's in Gentile there were requests both for declaratory and injunctive relief, and the claims were that the uh, agency had exceeded stat, exceeded its authority in bringing that enforcement action, and the court recognized that um, at, at bottom was a question as to the legal authority to bring to bring the enforcement action in the first instance, and that is the same argument that's being made here plaintiffs are seeking declaratory and injunctive relief to uh, questioning the ability of the department to have any legal authority to assert, uh, to bring an investigation. And and so that's well, what well, I think. Well, well just, just to put maybe a fine
0: point on it, I don't know that they're saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if they're saying you don't have any authority. I think they're just saying we believe that the the 2013 rule to be invalid, and so we'd like you to strike that rule. Maybe maybe you can investigate for some other reason or, or, or some other thing, but but I don't know that it's challenging their overall authority. It seems really discreet. The rule's bogus. We'd like to challenge it. But I guess what you're saying, and, and maybe I've loaded that, so respond to that as needed, but, but let me just say this too. What's your position if they brought this suit in 2016 or 2017 that would be unequivocally timely? Would you say, no, we've got a deeper problem here, and the problem is that we've got an investigated party that's trying to railroad or direct the use of enforcement
3: discretion?
4: Your Honor, if these claims are brought in a timely fashion, there would still be this threshold defect, and that would be an independent reason to to reject these claims. Could
2: you repeat that? Sir,
4: if the claims, even if assuming the claims are timely, this is an independent Uh, threshold defect with the use of the APA, Um, it would be plaintiffs are effectively saying we think we committed a tort and we're coming to court to prevent the victim from being able to sue us for damages. And that's just not a proper use of the Declaratory Judgment Act and it's not a proper use of the APA. But separate and apart, the claims are also untimely. Uh, To be clear, plaintiffs have now um, recognized that for at least two of the claims, uh, uh, two of the plaintiffs, um, International and AmeriCare, they were formed more than six years after the promulgation of the, um, they were formed uh, more than six years prior to the claims being brought. So un, under any theory of accrual, their claims are are, are untimely. The, there's, there's also Agewell, which was formed in 2016. Um, it's not exactly precisely the one, but it was formed in 2016. So Agewell two could have brought a claim within six years of the rules promulgation, but chose not to, and only did so after the department told them that was going to investigate them. Um, but the, Even there, the accrual for APA claims or challenges to APA rules occurs when there's final agency action. That is the um, action that's being challenged. The idea is that the rule was invalid from day one, and so it makes sense to measure the time limit for the six-year accrual period from the final agency action that's being challenged. Um, Which is the promulgation of the rule in 2013. That's the only final agency action that's being challenged here. And, and there are so. Set,
0: so what? If, what, if, what if a plaintiff didn't have standing um, in the statute of limitations period? Would would we sit there and say, you know, so sorry? Uh, well, you're, first of all, that's not
4: the hypothetical that's presented here, right? I know, no, no, I know it's, a, it's 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 a different. Yes, of course, of the, but though. that's not presented here. But even in that situation, um, the the the, um, the conclusion would be that the plaintiff's lack of standing. Uh, did not prevent the accrual of the limitations period? There are any number of requirements to maintain a suit so, successfully.
0: So, so a person who could have never sued during the six-year period would just be forever bound to follow that unless and until they wanted to raise the defense to an enforcement action. They would lose Abbott Labs. They would lose all pre-enforcement review. Thoughts of sufficient imminency don't matter anymore. Let's just see what happens as a defense. Uh, there's a few things. Around, right? It's not No. First, there's always the availability of 553E, um, it, which is which is petition, which I don't think qualifies as an adequate remedy of law. And so I don't know that that's a bar under 704 or would be kind of an otherwise equitable consideration.
4: Is that wrong? I, you know, I'm just asking just the response of whether they have any opportunity okay, to challenge fine. the rule. 55E is, is out there. They have the ability to challenge the rule in 55E.
0: Through a petition for rule, through a petition for re- repeal or modification of a rule,
3: which what is, is... What do you say about your opponent's um, response to me when I mentioned 553E? E, and they said that's great in theory, but it really does not work in practice. Because I, of the time.
4: You are under... I mean, that, that's the, the avenue that Congress made available. I mean, whether 553E... They're, no, they're saying no,
3: and they're saying in practice it's really not an avenue.
4: I, you know, I, I don't think that's true, uh, the ability to petition the agency is what the APA provides for, and that's the ability they have. The, their agency, uh, a regulated party could also, um, you know, if there's additional final agency action that's taken, you know, that's the crew case, um, uh, in which the rules apply to them, they can bring a suit. And, and this is hardly an anomalous outcome, Your Honor. I mean, there are any number of statutes, there's the Hobbs Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, that after a set period of time, these are the options that Congress made available uh, to regulated entities, it's it's no different. They'd be no different than an entity in that situation, but but again, to the extent that but, but, but maybe those
0: are more like statutes of repose and statute limitations that hinge on accrual or have unique textual components to them that foreclose in a way that 2401 doesn't.
4: The, you know, they're not statutes of repose, right? Statues of repose are creatures of tort in which they in which foreclose Preachers. all foreclose all tort liability um, and, and foreclose all liability at all. But that's not that's not any of those statutes. There isn't any tort liability in the United States at issue here. And again, there, there's not a claim that once a rule is more than six years old, it's forever insulated from review. There are avenues to challenge that rule, both in terms of 553, but also in the course of a, uh, any additional final agency action. And then the crucial point is, or in the cases as is here, when the, there are enforcement actions being taken against the entity, they can always raise those arguments as a defense, and it and it makes sense in this context.
2: Your contention contention that Judge Sutton is wrong in the her opinion?
4: I, you're, I think her is just not a, applicable here. You know, the the claims that issue in her were quite different than the claims that are being asserted here. You know, plaintiff's assertion here. But the here,
2: action that that caused uh, their claim to be timely was the threat of enforcement, the, the letter saying, that they're going to be criminally prosecuted if they don't cease and desist.
4: I, I, I'm not sure that's quite right, Your Honor. I mean, in in her, the the, the claims there were that they were um, the rules applied to them for the very first time. Uh, this voting restriction. As and, but, but, but he
2: says, remember that here they were threatened with criminal enforcement in
4: 2013. Correct. That in um, the, things changed in 2013 is what uh, the Sixth Circuit said. Um, but but the claims were that that they were property owners and that the rule was only invalid as to property owners and they saw it in conjunction of the application of the rule to property owners. There wasn't a claim that the voting restriction was valid just broadly. The claim was that it was invalid as applied to them. Um, th- that the plaintiffs claim here is that the rule has been invalid as to everyone since day one, um, and, and that's just a quite different claim. That's not quite the same as in her. Uh, and, and so, you know the the again the, the the idea of claim accrual is I- irrelevant for at least two of the parties, and I just want to but, but
0: focus. I, I, I guess my thought is on relief. what if they said we don't want a nationwide injunction we don't want anything else like this, we just want to declare we just want a court to declare this um, this two thousand thirteen rule we just want to set it aside um, just j- just for purposes of what they're going to do to us now. Maybe that comes up in a separate suit in Nebraska. Maybe, maybe that's litigated differently there. But if there's not a corresponding request for like super, super, super broad relief to have it taken away for everyone at all times, it kind of has the force and effect
4: of an as applied rule, ruling. I
0: mean, that's I see my challenge. Is, yeah. I see my time,
4: is I may, may address yeah. the, the questions. Um, I, Your Honor, the, the distinction that is being drawn between facial and as the, applied and the various cases that was, uh, the court cited in their supplemental brief is, is a distinction between a, a direct challenge to the rulemaking itself, which is what plaintiffs are asserting here, and a challenge to some other final agency action applying that rule. Um, and, and so the nature of the remedy that's being sought, whether it's, um, the, the government's position is that vacature and setting aside a rule is, is not ever a proper remedy, but putting that aside for a second, um, the, the nature of the, reme- the remedy sought d- d- doesn't distinguish between a facial or as-applied challenge. What matters is what is the agency action that's being challenged. Here, the agency action being challenged was the promulgation of the rule in 2013. The six-year period ran from the final agency action, so it expired on October 1st, 2019, and plaintiffs to that all of their claims are brought after that point. And so they are, they are untimely so so basically my my number one takeaway and maybe
0: my colleagues have questions but I, my last question for you is this my number one takeaway from your position is that as of 2019 no one can bring even with standing beforehand or without standing beforehand can bring a pre-enforcement challenge to this rule
4: is that right uh, you and i would i don't know if that's quite right i want to make sure i'm clear about my my statement um, the, at the expiration of the 2019 period, yes, um, no one can bring a pre-enforcement challenge. Parties can apply the application of the rule to them. Now, if this court is concerned by a situation Wait, that
3: like, is just... after
4: 20 after the six-year expiration period has expired, parties can challenge the rules' application to them, or they can raise it as an affirmative defense in the course of an enforcement proceeding or they can petition for the rulemaking to be changed, which is exactly the same as regulated entities under the Hobbs Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, CERCLA. Like, this is hardly an anomalous congressional decision about having repose for congressional act, I'm sorry, for administrative actions. And now, Your Honor, if the concern is that there may be a situation in which a party that has formed after that, that six-year time period who so never had the opportunity to bring a challenge, whether that might be treated differently uh, under some kind of equitable tolling or something else, you know, that question isn't before this court because there is no doubt that all three of the plaintiffs here had the ability to challenge the rule within the six years of the promulgation of the rule.
2: What, what would they have had to allege in here in order for you to say, aha, they are challenging the application of the rule to them?
4: Uh, final agency action, Your Honor. They would have to show that there was
2: some enforcement proceeding and they were found in violation.
4: Th- that's not final agency action. That's review- reviewable under the APA. It- Your Honor, I just want to be clear. They can surely, and they have, raised as a defense in the course of the enforcement proceeding. I know
2: that. I know that.
4: But, but, but they would need to show final agency action. That is the key for re- what APA that, review. What
2: would that look like? What would, what would have to have, have happened for them to allege that in here and have it be cognizable?
4: Uh, Your Honor, know, there would have to be, I would point to an example like crew, right? In, in the crew of the FCC case at the DC Circuit, there was an administrative complaint that was filed, the administrative complaint was denied. In the course of the denial of that administrative complaint, the agency applied the rule to them, uh, and then they brought in an as applied challenge to that action. So
2: it's pretty much what Judge Phipps said. There really is no such thing as pre-enforcement.
4: Uh, Your Honor, know, they can bring a direct challenge to a rule within six years. That is the scope of the limitations period. Um, just like under the Hobbs Act, I, I believe it's 60 days that, that, that the claim is going to be brought. Um, and after that period, a, a regulated entity who wants to challenge a regulation that's governed by the Hobbs Act is sitting in the same position as someone who had the entire six years to challenge an APA claim. Um, I see my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: have it down to reserve five minutes. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Okay, I'll jump right in. Uh, first, on this violative action point, there is no case that I've ever seen, uh, certainly no case the government has pointed to, that holds the rule that they try to get advanced here. In Abbott Labs, it is uncontested throughout that opinion. They were in violation of the regulations. That was clear the whole time. It, they made the same argument in the first Sackett case the Supreme Court. They said, unlike Free Enterprise, the Sacketts have violated... Uh, the relevant order, and they just have to wait for enforcement. The Supreme Court did not bite on that and said that pre-enforcement review was available. I think those two cases are all you need to know uh, about the government's first argument. I also want to make clear that we're seeking classic declaratory judgment relief. We're not trying to interfere with enforcement discretion. We made this clear below that all we're seeking is the the normal declaratory judgment act ruling about is this rule compliant with the APA or not?
2: Well, but you're asking for an injunction. Which we're we have, we're
1: to... not we're not asking for an injunction, Your Honor. Okay. Just declaratory relief. Okay. Um, that that we narrowed that below. I think the government has conceded that uh, in, in their briefing, okay. um, uh, precisely to make to make this point clear. This is also uh, it mentioned in the district court's opinion. Um, the um, uh, the notion that um, you have to, I think, Judge Phipps, you're exactly right, that the notion that you have to have clean hands somehow before you can sue, that, that's not the case. And this is a classic example of why pre-enforcement review is available. My clients didn't think they were breaking the law, and then they got a call from uh, the Department of Labor saying, we think you are, and we're going to come and destroy your businesses in all likelihood. And then they said, boy, at the end of that process, and certainly the, the government has not, has thrown up every obstacle they possibly can in those enforcement proceedings to litigating the merits of that, uh, of the APA issue for the 2013 rule. And it's just saying, we'd like to resolve that first. That's why we brought this case. Um, so also, to, just to be clear, nothing in that declaratory relief uh, goes to anything that's agency discretion um, that's protected by law. I would say that the ex-party Young uh, decision, the canonical uh, early 1900, um uh, it's like 1903 or whatever case, says that um, there's no interference, even actually with an injunction. There's no interference with the government's legitimate enforcement discretion. All that's happening is the government's being told, here's something unlawful you can't do. You could never do it in the first place. Uh, my opposing counsel mentioned any theory of accrual uh, as if any theory of accrual cuts the other way with us, and then went on to say that the uh, Section 2401A is just like the Hobbs Act. It's just like the Clean Water Act, right? It's not. And that's really our key point, is the distinction in the text matters. The text of 2401A says you look at when the plaintiff's right of action first accrues. Clean Water Act, Hobbs Act, those talk about when the agency's rule or order is put in the Federal Register. right? Congress knows how to write statutes. You can call it what you like. I think they're a statute of repose in the sense that they – give repose from pre-enforcement review, those uh, those statutes um, uh, exist. Congress knows how to do it, and it hasn't done it here. Uh, uh, any, I think, in the Sackett II case just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court said that an argument that ignores the text of the statute cannot be taken seriously. And they don't say a word about how something can accrue in the abstract, right? It accrues, as I said before, it accrues to a particular person at a particular time, and that's how we approach statutes of limitation. In every other case, every member of this panel has taken uh, that position in, in different cases. So, uh, so,
0: so let, let me just let me just ask you this, right? Like, one uses the phrase "I think first accrues." Yes. Right. And so, if if what the agency action is that you've got a problem with is the rule, yes, and not discretionary enforcement, right? The time that that challenge first occurs is probably the first time that you're in violation of the rule. It's when it first accrues. And so I guess my thought is if we marry accrues to first to aggrieve to agency action, it strikes me that maybe age well has a play because it first accrued at a time period when we were if, if we start the clock later, they were in it. Right. But the other two plaintiffs don't, if we use when the agency action, as in the rule, first applied to them. So the, and, and so if otherwise it strikes me that first is kind of, you know, a little bit canon of superfluity, not doing as much work as maybe it
1: should. What do you say? I would, I point the court to the hair case, I see my time's expired. You yeah. So the hair case involved a very similar argument and what the court said was there was a different wrong that first accrued at a different point in time. So one way of thinking about this no, might I'm, be- I'm
3: wholly, I know that language is cited all the time and different rights from, similar. more I thought about that the less uh, overwhelmed I am by it. I'm totally underwhelmed by that analysis because that doesn't really answer the question. If something has accrued, the fact that not something else, a different injury occurred later on, doesn't negate the fact that something occurred earlier on in, in, in Harrow was the fact that they were using the lake recreational, recreationally, different from a property interest in boating on the lake, but it was still something, an injury that occurred to them, a food to them, because they couldn't use the, the lake recreationally. And, and, and Jeff Sutton's analogy of that. I know it's caught on, but I'm really, as i becky used to you, say, underwhelmed by it.
1: So let, let me give a, a, a hypothetical that I think elucidates why his reasoning is correct. So imagine you go into a bar and you get punched in the nose by some guy. You go in a week later, same guy punches you in the nose. Imagine there's a one-year statute of limitation. You bring suit you know, 364 days after the second. After the second punch. After the second punch. And you seek both declaratory, or you seek both injunctive relief, keep this guy away from me, and you seek damages, right? And you're seeking them on both counts. The first one's time barred. You can't get anything off of that. The second one is not. So the quantum of damages changes, right, between those two. But imagine you're also seeking, like I said, injunctive relief. The injunction's going to be the same.
0: I, I guess I guess my problem with your hypo is these are two separate punches in your hypo. And in this situation, we have a single rule. I, and so, so I guess... And the rule happened on the same day. So I'm struggling to figure out what first accrued means for two of the defendants when it might have first accrued for them um,
1: earlier than age well. So I think the point is that What the claim is that they're bringing, and each time you need two things. You need both the final agency action, and you need the adverse effect. And it's clear that you can have multiple adverse effects that happen over different points in time.
0: But then what does, what does
1: first mean? So imagine you have... Doesn't
0: first mean the first adverse effect, as opposed to any adverse effect, or the last, because the hypo you gave was like the last adverse
1: effect. Right. But, but 2401, I think, says first. So first as to the claim that you're bringing. So imagine you've got, like, a mining claim or something, and there's a BLM reg that deals with that. And then it's nothing new happens. There's no enforcement. It just changes your rights as to that piece of property. At that point, it approves at that moment. And then six years later, you're out of luck if you wanted to challenge it in a pre-enforcement posture. Um, the difference here is is you've got you do have subsequent things that happen. And I think that's, like, this is the point about um, uh, with with the the hairs. Things change in twenty fifteen. like, things change over time. The government changes what it's doing. And pre-enforcement review is about if there's some good reason to go to court, right, and it's like I said, it's a low bar, but you have to show something. You have to show a concrete, particularized injury in fact, and then you have to show that you're within the zone of interest of the statute. And it's, again, to your, to your, your question, The distinction, I think, is about what it is that's first accruing. Um, So, so let me just let me just
0: tease this out. So maybe what I hear you saying is, let's just put age well off to the side because this 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 hypo doesn't involve them. Um, But we've got the other two, and so let's just say that they're in violation of the rule, um, but then for the entire until 2019. Um, They don't receive any letter, any notion, any rumbling that there's going to be any problem whatsoever. And then the day after it expires in 2019, the Department of Labor comes and says, oh, hey, guess what, we're here now, and what we want to do is talk about your business and its transgressions. I guess um, what you would say is... Maybe the cause of action first accrued beforehand because the rule was applying to them beforehand, but they couldn't have real standing, maybe, to bring it. They might have standing before, that, until they got the letter. So we're kind of adding in not just aggrieved, but aggrieved plus letter.
1: I think the letter is just evidence that you are being aggrieved. I I just think the distinction has to be made between injuries and final agency action and that they're separate and that you can have multiple injuries. And like in my hypo, where you go to court, the fact that the relief is the same doesn't matter, right? If the APA gave a damages cause of action in addition to injunctive relief, you wouldn't be able to get damages for the stuff beforehand, even if it counts as being first degree whatever, right? And I, that's why I bring that analogy into it, because I think that elucidates the, the distinction of like what is this cause of action? What is the thing that you brought this uh, this case as a result of not because of just the final agency action, but also because of whatever that injury is to you. And that that's the that's, I think, the, the, the key distinction. Um, uh, the, the only other point I would make, Your Honor, if I may, is uh, on the crew case, uh, the D.C. Circuit crew case, uh, the government's just not right that final agency action uh, is required in all those cases. Some Fifth Circuit does talk about final agency action. Fourth Circuit does. Uh, but in the crew case, they actually talk about the application that's referenced in that decision is actually a decision not to enforce something. That's classic non-final agency action. So if you were to get into that, I don't think you should. But I would say that the D.C. Circuit's more flexible framework is the right one. Um, we would ask that the court uh, uh, reverse and remand uh, for further proceedings. Thank you very
3: much. Thank you very much. If,
0: uh, if possible, could the parties confer and... Uh, maybe get us a transcript, confer about maybe cost sharing or anything else like this, I think we'd really benefit from a transcript of this argument. If you'd be able to do that, that would be wonderful. Thank you very much.